You're listening to Money Makers, talking with leading professional investors about current trends and opportunities in the financial markets. Yes, hello and welcome to the latest podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. I'm delighted to be joined again today by Dr. Paul Jordan, the CEO of Amati Global Investors, who with his colleagues, a team of three in all, run two small cap funds and an AIM portfolio service from their headquarters in Edinburgh. We last talked to Paul a year ago, since when his main small cap fund has risen more than 35% and collected a number of new awards for its performance. When we spoke a year ago, uh, Paul, investors were particularly concerned about the consequences of Brexit, about higher interest rates and about the election of Donald Trump. And you said then that while we would have to wait to see which way the market jumped, it was premature to turn bearish. And indeed, you thought it quite likely that there could be a significant rise in share prices over the coming 12 months. Well, in the event, we've had a very good year. You've had a very good year. Uh, you've beaten the market again. Um, you must be very pleased with this turn of events. We are absolutely delighted with the turn of events, of course. And, and it just shows the difficulty of trying to predict which way the stock market's going to go. It can be a bit of a, a, bit of a um, fruitless task to try and do that. So what's actually driven the performance uh, in your case of your portfolio? Has it been the earnings that have gone up or has it been the multiple that investors have applied to those earnings? I would say both, actually. I, there's, there's no doubt that the best growth companies in the market trade at pretty high multiples and that there's big appetite for them amongst investors. And we are essentially growth company investors. Our, our ideal investment is a company that's you can buy now and come back in 10 years' time and it will be a lot more valuable because it's grown a lot. So growth is one of the primary metrics that we look at in companies. And it's very clear if you're a high-growth company in today's market, then there's a great appreciation of that. So a year ago, many people were also saying, though, that you know growth as a style of investing would, would tend to go out of fashion a little bit this year and value would come back into its, uh, into its own again having been out of favour for many, many years now, seven or eight years. Uh, that hasn't happened either, really. There was a sort of false dawn, I think. Um, but that's not going to change what you do, presumably. You're still going to be looking for those growth stocks, and then the, the valuations will take care of themselves. Yes, it's a little bit of a simplification. But it's interesting, people say that every year, that I have been saying it for many years, in, including the eminent professors from the London Business School who uh, published their study on the small companies market once a year. They've... Their, their analysis would suggest over the 70-year period that the best place you can be is small cap value. And th- there's a reason why I think that that's led to some mistaken conclusions. And one of the reasons is because actually when you when you break this down a little bit, the best period ever for small cap value was in the very beginning of that index series in the 50s and 60s. So you're using quite old data if you, if you want to extrapolate what's going to happen in the future. And I suppose second and more importantly, there's an idea which I've been considering quite a lot in the last year to, in order to try and explain what's going on, because we, we do like to try and understand what's happening. There's an interesting way of seeing things which may be worth sort of um, voicing. The thought goes a bit like this, and it comes from an, an interesting and, and probably underknown economist called Carlotta Perez. And she has a, puts forward a theory of industrial revolutions. Uh, and, and actually that word, in, that phrase, industrial revolutions, I've noticed has entered the political domain now. It's being wheeled out a bit more than it was a year ago. And and of, of course, we are in the midst of an industrial revolution. And, and it, the question is, how do we talk about it? How do we see it? And it, it doesn't get a lot of airtime or consideration in its own right. And I think it will do by historians when they look at this period. And 
Carlotta Perez has a theory that an industrial revolution begins, of course, with a, a new invention of great significance, which is going to change the way things happen in the world. And the, the industrial revolution we're talking about began in 1972 with the microprocessor, which was um, put into the market by Intel in that year. And so she, she talks about a number of phases that these revolutions go through. And the first phase is really all about the inventions. It's the dis discovery phase. It's the time when new technology is being um, invented at a great pace. And, and the initial invention, if you think about it, the microprocessor in 1972, it was basically pretty rubbish. It was an incredible thing. And everyone thought, wow, this is, you know, this is going to change the world. But when you look at it from the context of today, you know, it was a tiny fraction of the power of your mobile phone. And uh, few people at the time could have had an idea about exactly how far that was going to go. So the discovery phase was about increasing the power and the capabilities and then the follow-on inventions and all the surrounding technology that's required for it. And of course, um, a little way down the road from that, the invention and establishment of the internet, in which I guess was 80s to 90s. I, I really first heard about it um, properly in the 1990s myself. I'm sure other people came across it much, much earlier. But the internet was then seen as a massive game changer. But then what typically happens in these in these cycles is that the discovery phase leads to a frenzy which of course we saw with the dot-com boom and that frenzy is followed by uh, a crisis because inevitably what happens is us human beings we, we get so excited by the idea that we think the world's going to change tomorrow that, that this new these new inventions are going to um, change the way everything happens and we overestimate how fast that can take place and it's very it's, I have noticed over the years that it's very common to get excited about a new idea and overestimate the speed at which an industry changes because when you understand the idea you, you think of course the industry is going to embrace this and adopt it uh, it almost never it, it happens of course but it rarely happens at the kind of speed that we think it's a matter of decades rather than can be decades two or three years can be that but it just it's longer than one reckons and so you could say there was a gap then between 2000 and 2010 which was characterized by a great sort of sorting out when many companies went to the wall, lots of ambitious projects had to be scaled back. A few giants in the States became exactly that, the, the global giants. And uh, they came to occupy what I like to see as the, the, what I call the prime real estate of the internet. We became dominated by these American giant companies. Then we entered, I think we entered from around 2010, what would then be termed by Carlotta Perez, the, the implementation period. And from 2010 to now, and, and I don't think this is finished, what we've been seeing is the, a large number of companies successfully deploying new technology in a way that has not necessarily been seen to the same degree and the same success rate before. And, and I, I think I understand some of our success over the last few years as being part of this narrative. The consistent theme in our portfolio when I look down it is these are companies that have enormous and, 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 and profound domain expertise in their industries. They really understand the businesses they're in, but at the same time, they're able to apply the new technology from this industrial revolution to those industries very specifically in niche ways, in ways that generate profits fairly quickly. These are not projects that are going to take decades to come to fruition that don't require hundreds of millions of pounds to get there because in the UK that's just not how we work that happens in Silicon Valley we don't have that capacity in the UK and whenever I have seen it happen it hasn't been terribly successful so these but do these companies just to go back to this point about the small cap I mean these companies start off as small cap all companies start off as small cap companies but the, the point you're making is you're able to 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 find them 
uh, at an early enough stage you can capture what is potentially some very significant multiples of, of growth. Yeah, and I suppose what's changed here is we haven't got any cleverer. I, th- I think what's gone on is there are more really good companies to find. The quality of opportunity available on the market has notably improved, I'd say, since 2007 eight. When I look back at what was available 10 years ago, I'm actually rather horrified at how thin and poor it looks compared to what's available now. And and, and I, I attribute that increase in quality to this phenomenon, that with this implementation phase creates really substantial opportunities that can be realised. Whereas if we, when you rewind the clock 10 years ago, uh, we were looking at ambitious stories and um, lots of ambition, but little chance of really realising it. So what you're really saying is there's been this sort of secular change, which this theory may well explain, uh, which is basically it's a sort of background, what's been going on in the background, which sort of trumps any kind of short-term criteria that you might normally have looked at, or which Dimson and Marsh, the professors, would say, you know, value, growth, or kind of thing. This is a sort of, this is a game changer that is happening, but it's happening a little bit later than people expected, and it will be, it will go in cycles, presumably, there will be a finite point at which it comes to an end. Yes, and it's happening in a more subtle way, maybe, than people expected. And, and w- w- the way that we do this really well in the UK, actually, is is in this type of business where somebody is a leading expert in their industry. They, they've worked in it maybe all their life and they really understand it, but they also bring to bear new technology in an effective way. So they combine two things. And I would say that's characteristic of many of our biggest holdings and most successful businesses. And these are not just one or two companies. This is you know a substantial number of companies are doing this. So this is not a rare phenomenon anymore. So can you give us an example, a couple of examples of companies that fall into this categorization? Yeah, I mean, a good example is a company like Accesso, for example, which is uh, something we hold in um, both our small companies fund and in one of the VSTs had a long established holding in this company, which is actually purchased in about 2003 or four. So it's a very long established holding. And to characterize it along the, the lines I've been talking about, um, Accesso began life as a company called LowQ, and that had some technology that it brought to bear for uh, leisure attractions, so theme parks, and, and the technology was electronic queuing. And electronic queuing opens up an opportunity for theme park operators to bring some price segmentation to their customer base. In other words, to separate out customers who were very price sensitive, who were going to pay the ticket price but nothing more, from those who are really quite price insensitive, who didn't mind paying quite a lot more than the ticket price but wanted maybe to have shorter queues in exchange. And electronic queuing allows you to do that. And, and in every industry, price segmentation amongst your customer base is a clear goal. So, you know, it's what supermarkets do very well with different ranges of products. And so it allows the theme park operator to have different ranges of product. But actually, Accesso at low queue, as it was, really went nowhere for many, many years. And buying it in 2004 was quite premature. But from 2010, when they, they, did, a two, they did a couple of things, they changed their management. They brought in somebody who was a um, really top quality salesperson, somebody who really understood selling, somebody who could understand the industry very fast. And they combined that with the technology that they had, which was leading technology patented. It was clearly along the right lines for their customer base. Combining professionalized management with that technology proved to be a very, very fertile starting point. And since what, they, what they've done since then is they've added to their position very greatly through acquisitions. They bought in a company called Accesso, which is why they changed the name, which was a ticketing, one of the world leading ticketing companies. So now probably their most successful business, single business, is selling the tickets for leisure attractions. 
and and they you might just think well that's a website and why can't anyone do that actually it's a very skillful process so clearly what you're trying to do is not just sell a ticket but sell a car parking space maybe a, some vouchers for some meals or dis- as much as you can before your customer gets to the theme park and there's a well-established phenomenon amongst theme park operators which if you've ever been to one of these attractions you may recognize in yourself that money you spent yeah. before you get there is forgotten about on the day but you're only going to spend so much money on the day itself regardless of how much you spent before you get there so by selling more before your customers get to the theme park the total amount they're going to spend will rise so accesso actually is an important a very important partner now to their customers and then just very recently in the last few months they've made another potential step change to the business by making their highest value acquisition and in some ways the most speculative acquisition they've done they bought a company called the customer experience and um, that was founded by some um, people who built this technology, first of all, within Disney, who spent about a billion dollars developing this particular kind of engine. And they then set up their own business and began selling a new version of this to the rest of the market. And Accesso had a number of their customers come to them and say, why don't you buy this company? Because we see ourselves as customers of, of this. It's a rather more, slightly less tangible, less easily grasped um, thing. And essentially what it what it boils down to is some very clever analytics, which is all the time looking at the availability of assets within the um, leisure asset operator and the customer's preferences in, in analysing a lot of detail and their exact movements and what they're likely to do next. So they can propose things to the customers that they might want to do next. Maybe say, you've just done this, maybe you now want to have a meal, it's lunchtime, would you like to have a discount at this particular restaurant you're nearby? And if you like smoothing the customer's journey through the theme park or the cruise boat or whatever, you're, so you're improving the experience for the customer, but you're also improving the asset utilization for the provider. So, well, that, that's a fascinating story. And I think um, the kind of thing which I personally, as an old grunt, would find myself very resistant, but I'm sure I'm malleable like everybody else as a customer. But I think if I just looking at a standard, uh, you know, kind of stock screening service here, and it, and this is telling me that it's on a PE of 96 times and a price to book of nine times or something like that. Uh, and of course, it, the earnings are going very fast or potentially going very fast. But that's the kind of, you know, thing that most people aren't going to find their way to unless they really understand the potential of a company like this to, to go on delivering the goods. And I suppose that's the risk you're taking is that at some point it's going to run out of steam. And these are pretty hefty yes, multiples. Absolutely, and and so I, I would say uh, some of the some of the gains that have been made in the last two years in this kind of investment have been multiple expansion, and that clearly has risk. So I, there's no getting away from that. This this is not a new trend in the market. This is a fairly well developed trend, and to invest in it now, you are having to do what you always have to do if you invest in a well established trend and, and pay the price. And there will, of course, come a point when that trend becomes exhausted. And, of course, the the very difficult judgment to make is at what point does one say, this has been fantastic, but there's now better opportunities somewhere else. And that's a question we ask ourselves a lot. Right. But I suppose you also have the option, because you've got a portfolio of, you know, uh, quite a few stocks, you can top slice these things as they go up in value and you can recycle that into other things. So you're kind of, you're you're banking some of the game, but you're recycling. And presumably that's what you do to keep within your portfolio limits of, whatever they are, 3% or 4% of the portfolio. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and being willing to top slice holdings is sensible. But the the other thing which is also sensible is being willing to run your your winners because <laughs> it's, it's, it's one, of, one of the great mistakes of the most easily made mistakes as an investor is to, you know, something goes up, so you sell it. Yeah. Um, you know, why? It's probably gone up because it's really good. 
So assessing, trying to understand the very long-term value of a company is actually a really difficult thing to do. And it requires some pretty complex modelling. And actually one thing we have started to do, because we're in this position where some of the multiples are very high, and they have been for a long time. So high multiple doesn't mean end of story, in other words, is what I'm trying to say. But the kind of modelling one would want to do to say, is this is enough enough, is you want to say, well, how big can this company get? Let's model it forwards 10, 15 years and say, to justify this valuation, in fact, to justify a much higher valuation, how big does the company have to be? And then to sense check it and say, is this company ever really going to be that big? And if it isn't, then clearly your story is probably run out of steam. But if you say, actually, yes, it could be that big. And if it, it you know, actually it could be bigger than that. So you're trying to gauge over a long period of time, are you, is, is it possible you're still underestimating that company? Because the theory of growth investing in some ways depends on the fact that the market tends to underestimate long-term growth because long-term growth is an exponential function. It's what people forget. It compounds, whereas PEs are actually a linear function. Yes. And, and, and the market's focus is often quite short-term. It's sort of a year, 18 months, two years yeah. more than yeah. the, for various reasons we don't need to go into. Okay, so let's take another example, a uh, slightly different field, in obviously not quite the same kind of story as you're talking about, but one I know where we've interested lots of people who follow the market, which would be Fever Tree, a company that has had an extraordinary history on the stock market and one in which you've been invested from a very early stage. It has sold off quite significantly in the last uh, few weeks. Is that a case where you would suddenly say it's reached a peak in its potential growth or not? I, I don't want to be categorical about this question. Obviously, we love Fever Tree. It's been a tremendous UK success story, uh, just phenomenal. And that's a good example where what, one thing you do have in Fever Tree is you have extraordinary domain expertise the management team absolutely understand their industry that's the key to their success and you know that success in that business is actually more about distribution than it is about product lots of people can design a phenomenal tonic water or ginger ale it's not like falling off a log it's still difficult but lots of people have done it what very very few people have done is establish that level of distribution in the market it's a stock where actually we have asked ourselves exactly that question if you model it forwards 10, 15 years, and you say, well, actually, how big does it need to be to justify this price? Actually, Fever Tree still looks to us like it has potential. And one of the reasons for that is because it's a very, the drinks business is a very high margin business. And it's a very long term, once you establish a brand in that business, your customer base becomes sticky. So I suppose one of the key question marks over keywords is to what degree can it's the market share that it's taken, which primarily from Schweppes, to what degree can that be taken back? And we are of the view that, broadly speaking, it's got a very strong position. One of the reasons it's sold off recently is because Schweppes have done various, made various moves to say, right, we're going to take some of this market back. And clearly, the degree to which they're successful at that presents a threat to Fever Tree. I, I think we're still inclined to think Fever Tree has a strong proposition. But clearly, you know, we're not where we were three years ago. When you have a stock that's risen as dramatically as that, you have to be asking yourself all the time, how much is in the price here? How much potential is there here? So there is still potential. It's high margin, so it very quickly turns to profits and cash. Uh, it's not a company that has to scale up its operations to scale up its turnover. It's another very attractive feature of it. So you can see why, actually, the market would place a high value on this. And, of course, there's a possibility that, that Shreps might decide in the end it's much simpler just to, to buy a fever tree and, and take that on board. That's possible. I mean, I, I doubt it would be Shreps that does it, but, I mean, it would be logical hey, for no, someone in the drinks business to buy yeah. it, but, you know, when, as, as it matures. Let's look at one other sector where, obviously, again, people have expected for some time there'd be significant changes driven by technology and wider changes, and that's the, and that's the financial services sector. Um, and I think you've got one or two companies in there, which, which uh, perhaps you could um, explain one or two of your holdings there and why 
how that fits into the story, or if it does fit into the story of technology change, or is it actually about something else in, in that case? Well, I mean, may, maybe the most interesting uh, example of that would be uh, there's a company called Mortgage Advice Bureau, which I think is interesting in this respect, in, in that um, the Mortgage Advice Bureau, as, as I'm sure you know, is, is a company that um, provides the business infrastructure for mortgage brokers. And um, mortgage brokers now need very substantial and sophisticated compliance functions, business operations. In order to meet the demands of that, there's a strong rationale for outsourcing, effectively joining Mortgage Advice Bureau. You don't necessarily have to rebrand. Some of them may rebrand as Mortgage Advice Bureau brokers. Others may not. They just use them as their um, technology and compliance provider. And the reason why I'm mentioning that is because what's happening in that market is technology is really opening up. Right at the top of the company's strategy agenda now is technology. And the kind of the reason for that, the top of the list of the things they're talking about, is the banking regulation that comes in from next year, where banks will become obliged to share third-party access to customer bank account data. So you can um, go to your bank and say, I want to be able to see my account, obviously, but actually I also want to permission this third party to have a look at all the data from my account. And that might mean that you just get, for the first time, you have access to analytics on your account. And there's a company, actually, they were neighbours of ours in Edinburgh um, for many years called um, Money Dashboard. So I've known about this legislation coming in for many years and the potential that it offers. So Money Dashboard, if you like, is your personal analytics. You can permission all your bank accounts and all your credit cards for Money Dashboard to be able to see the data. They have no control over the accounts. They just have access to the records that come out of it. So they can then provide you as the customer with a full picture of all of your cash balances and all your debits and your credit cards. And they can tell you what you're spending your money on, more importantly. It's like a consolidator. Of- yeah. So every month you can say, these are my incoming, these are my incomings, these are my outgoings. My bill's divided up this much on groceries, this much went on mortgage, and you can classify all your spending and it will do a lot of it automatically. Now, clearly, if you're a mortgage broker, one of the things you have to do is analyse your customers' spending and how much their incomings are and how much their outgoings are. And in the past, this was done by getting them to fill in the questionnaire. And A, they didn't know. And B, they might not tell you the truth. Indeed. And partly because they don't know. So what opens up now as a possibility through this change in the legislation and technology is that you can automate all of this so you say to your customer give me permission for our system to analyze your records and we're going to you'll probably learn something from this because you're going to find out these are your outgoings these are your incomings this is what you spend money on and they can then give them uh, fca compliant advice based on that data and this this isn't 100 there yet but it's coming so you can see how the logic then for a, a mortgage broker who's independent to join up with a network like mortgage advice bureau goes from being compelling to being actually you really have to do this because you're getting it left behind if you don't and it, it basically it's saving you an awful lot of time money and, and effort and yeah. also actually has some value for the end end user i mean the, you get a better result it takes you much less time and right. the broker is able to be much more sure that they're giving you compliant advice well that's very interesting okay so um let's just talk about aim you mentioned uh, already that the you know the small cap uh, sector having uh, improved in quality um, I mean, a lot of people have the wrong idea about AIM, I think. It's, I mean, there are some very good companies in AIM, um, and there's also a lot of rubbish because there tends to be cycles when people want to buy resource stocks and things, and they all disappear or, or whatever it might be. But it's still something which I think is not as fully appreciated as it ought to be, that you can actually find some very, very good companies in AIM, which, which not only are going to be in AIM, but they're actually going to stay on AIM for probably for quite some time. Is that why you invested in AIM, or is that because you uh, you think that it's a, a kind of proposition that other people would like to be yeah, invested in? I, I mean, 
In our small companies fund, we can invest either remain or on the full list, and we choose to invest. Currently, 58% of our fund is on AIM. And the only reason we're doing that is because that's where we see the best opportunities. We, we have no obligation to have anything on AIM, but we have the option to invest on AIM. And had we not had that option, our performance would have been a fraction of where it is now because that's where the best opportunities have been. There has been another phenomenon on AIM, which I'm, I'm sure you and most of you listening will be aware of, which is the fact because AIM has a number of tax privileges, one of which is after two years, the majority of AIM stocks qualify for business property relief, and that means they fall out of your estate and they become inheritance tax-free. That's a very substantial benefit, and that was, benefit was really underpriced, say, five, six years ago. So AIM took part of the re-rating that's happened on AIM has been actually valuing that as a benefit. And clearly there's, there's a, a um, strong flow of money that's come into the market, which has been fantastic for the market, I have to say. It's really turned it into a very dynamic market, uh, but it's there for that reason. So you could say, well, that, of course, presents a risk. What happens if that changes? And actually, one of the things I was really pleased to see in the uh, response to the patient capital review consultation document that happened over the uh, late summer, September, um, Treasury have issued a response to that. And in the response, they have mentioned business property relief, say it's still under review, but that they clearly understand the importance that this tax relief plays both in family businesses and in AIM. So that's on the public record that the current government, at any rate, has a strong understanding and is supportive of the idea that this tax relief is its an important component of AIM. It's always been there, and there's nothing new about this. It's been there since AIM began. It's just become a more used feature of the market, and I think a more valued feature of the market. But I'd say that one of the reasons it's being more adopted by people is because AIM itself has improved in quality, so it's actually made it a much more palatable for people who are thinking about inheritance tax. So these are older people. Um, typically they'd have excess savings and instead of buying a FTSE 100 tracker or putting it into emerging markets fund they're buying AIM stocks well that's great for the country fantastic for the business climate in the UK and the success of some of these companies the government understands that and really what they've said in this response is they're reviewing business property relief but they understand the value of it in these two areas so I I actually take great comfort from that because clearly one of the big risks is that the market is disruptive by this being withdrawn and that that would, you know, that would cause plenty of disruption. But are there enough, still enough good companies joining AIM? I mean, they, they, the reason the companies join AIM is because it's less likely, less heavily regulated, it's cheaper, and all the rest of it, so they can get access to the market mm-hmm. earlier than they perhaps would otherwise do. Um, but are you still seeing? Are we still seeing enough good companies coming through to to yes. sustain that quality? I mean, it's clear that's that's because it's one very helpful thing about our position is that we run because we run venture capital trusts as well as running a small companies fund. The work we do for the Venture Capital Trust requires us to look at most of the small companies that raise money for the first time on AIM. We look at most of the IPOs. We look at most of the secondary fundraisings, certainly in all the early, earlier stage companies. And this is incredibly helpful for us because we see them when they begin and we get to understand them very early on. Sometimes six months before they float, we'll be looking at them hard. And I would, my observation on it, and I'll really stand by this, is that the quality has gone up. You know, Going back to that earlier discussion, I think this is why it's gone up. And, and the, the barrier to flotation on AIM is actually quite high. There is a, a lot of scrutiny of, of flotations. In general, I would say the quality is actually has been improving. And that, that has been missed, I think, by many investors who still come back to us and say, well, of course, but AIM is it's a, it's a dodgy market. We don't want to go there. I think that's, that's a rather old and outdated notion. Before I come on to our final questions, I might, I might just quickly ask you also, you mentioned the Patient Capital Review. This is a Treasury-sponsored uh, review of 
the um, of the way that uh, early stage companies are, are financed, essentially. Yeah. Um, and there was some speculation that uh, venture capital trusts, as if not just AIM, but venture capital trusts in particular, they would they would tighten up the restrictions on 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 what you could in could not invest in. Uh, but in fact, I think they've they've given the VCT sector a pretty clean bill of health. I think it's fair to say, uh, and certainly as far as the budget's concerned, there were no really significant changes, except for one, which is actually positive about knowledge-intensive industries. Perhaps you could just explain what happened. Yes, and and what became clear over the summer through the discussions over the the, the uh, from Treasury around around eight, around VCTs, and, and all the managers actually were very heavily involved in these. Um, what became clear was. You know, the government has a very strong objection to VCT or EIS relief being used for uh, in a way which is characterised by capital preservation is the, is the term that they come up with. And, and capital preservation means coming up with a corporate entity which is designed to fit the criteria but not really designed to take any risk. So you minimise all you're really concerned about in creating these entities is to minimise the risk. Money goes in. A few years later, money comes out. It's the same amount that goes in as comes out, but it's um, it's, you're very likely to get the money out at the end um, and after a defined period of time and then you can wind the entity up and the money flows back to the investor and all that's really happened is somebody's got a tax relief and you can see why actually the government would be profoundly unhappy about that and they're right to be unhappy about it and uh, you know I'd say you know, most managers really understand that And um, but what was really I found very um, intelligent about the way in the budget was the way they've dealt with this they've, they've introduced a new test which is really to say in a quite subjective way, HMRC now will, under the new rules, will the first thing they'll do is they'll be able to say, make a quick assessment, is this capital preservation? And in the guidance they published just a couple of days ago, they've sort of defined what they think capital preservation looks like. And if they say this is capital preservation, they will spend no more time on it. They'll just give it back to the provider and say, we're not going to comment on that. If you want to do that, it's at your own risk. And that means actually the person sponsoring that can never get any assurance about whether it's going to qualify. So they'll have to regard it as not qualifying. And that will save a huge amount of time for HMRC and actually free up very valuable resources that are needed for approving the non-risk capital preservation type projects. Genuine entrepreneurial yeah. things and, that they should be encouraging. And it's a, it's a very, I see it as a very elegant and intelligent way of solving the problem. But my fear was that they would introduce another set of very complicated, closely worded sets of rules that were tightly defined you know the rules are already complicated enough and and the last thing they needed was a whole layer of new complexity and we haven't got that we've got a very simple new test it's a somewhat subjective test which means if somebody comes up with a very clever idea they've got no guarantee of getting around this to be fair there wasn't a lot of this left in the vct market but it will remove what was left and in the eis market there was much more of it i think this will be very successful at removing it which means that the schemes become properly focused in the way the government want them to be, and that's in everyone's interest for that for that to be the case. Exactly. Well, I'm sure the HMRC will be very pleased to be or described as elegant and, and intelligent. That's a that's a that's a nice thing to hear. I'm sure for them. Let me just finish then by asking, going back to the broader picture again. Okay, so we've got this very strong market in which perhaps this theory about technology is playing through, and it's certainly evident in the fact that a lot of new companies are coming to the market and doing very well and being supported by people like yourself and making money for investors as well as uh, being good for the economy. I have to ask you about, about Brexit. Everybody has to ask about Brexit. The question, I suppose, the only intelligent question I can ask you, given that where we are at the moment, no one quite knows what's going to happen, is there's uncertainty out there. But what are you hearing back from the companies which you've invested in what are they saying to you about Brexit? Is it going to make a big difference to their businesses or not? Are they worried about it? What, what, what are they doing? What's their mood? 
what I tend to think about is what is well understood in the market and what isn't well understood. Because I think in a way that's the important question. And I think there are some aspects of the Brexit risk which are clearly understood. So everybody understands now, uh, they didn't a year ago, that this is an extraordinarily complex process. I mean, it's mind-bogglingly complex. Anyone who's read some European legislation would have known that a year ago. But I think that's now much more general knowledge. As a country, we were guilty of um, making a lot of assumptions that this would kind of be easy. You know, those who were sceptical about Brexit were saying, hang on a minute, I think it's going to be a bit more, bit more complicated than that. And that's, a, now, that's now out there in the public domain. Everybody can see that now. So there are no simple answers here. But the fact that we've seen a mood of compromise creep in in, in the government um, is recognising, in fact, that actually let's just come to an agreement. It's not going to be anywhere near as easy as we thought. We need to compromise. And, and that, you know, that's clearly positive. You know, I think what everybody wants is an amicable settlement of some kind. It looks like it's going to be a transition process. And, you know, let's hope we can get there. Um, I'm, I'm certainly not of the view that um, hard Brexit, um, no deal scenario is at all satisfactory in any way. That's possibly an underpriced risk because there are still some people who think that's perfectly fine. So I, I worry that actually that's not really priced into the market because we're a bit too relaxed about that. I, I do see that as a very a very poor way for the UK to go severe some severe consequences but then the other areas which i think are not so well understood still you know maybe the easiest one to talk about here is is um, labor the labor market you know brexit um post a transition in fact even pre a transition it's already had a profound impact on the labor market and you know what um some of the brexiteers trump talked about and to you know to great effect from an electoral point of view was immigration but actually, it's going to turn out that that immigration played a really valuable role in the UK labour market. And uh, just, you know, out of in, uh, by chance, I, I happened to sit, sit on my flight to, down to London yesterday. I sat next to um, one of the directors of the British Medical Association, the BMA, and he was saying to me that 85% of the doctors, the European doctors in the UK, are planning to leave. And that, you know, and they, that, they don't mind whether there's a transition deal or not. They're just, you know, they're up significantly upset, and they want to go. They're going to go back. You know, the, the, one of the problems with Brexit is that this is not, this is not just a kind of rational, um, political, economic process. This is a very emotional issue, and people will respond emotionally. And if, you know, I have a lot of sympathy. I, uh, my European friends, they're upset, and it's not quite understandable. Um, but actually, we depend a lot on on European labour, and in many in many ways, we depend a lot on European very highly skilled labour. And so this is one. This was just brought it home to me that, you know, the doctor's situation, um, you know, this is going to cause a, a massive recruitment problem. You know, the BMA is now looking to Africa to recruit doctors. Well, you know, that's just very bad behaviour on Britain's part. We shouldn't be going to Africa to recruit doctors because they need the doctors there. But this is what this is what we're going to have to resort to. To so there will be significant dislocations in the labour market, which I'm not sure really have been thought about enough yet. And, that, and you know, the doctors is one example, but there are going to be many others. So a lot, therefore, depends on whether or not we can get a, uh, in your view, we, we can get a deal. And if we can somehow restore this feeling that actually we are partners in Europe rather than adversaries. Uh, I mean, the problem has always been to reconcile the politics with the economics, I think, isn't it? I mean, the EU is a political project. Uh, as well as an economic project, and, and and I think one of the things people object to is that, or some many people object to, is the is the the politics of it rather than the economics of it. Yeah, yeah. But we'll have to see how that pans out. But in terms of in terms of your companies that you own and so on, um, I mean, you're not making any changes because of Brexit or because of the uncertainty created by Brexit. I, th I think the reality we have to consider is that um, the UK will go through a period of suboptimal growth, and as it goes through that period. 
it'll be somewhat isolated in that it'll be specific to the UK. Um, and this is not something we've seen for really a long time. You know, the last seven or eight years, actually, it's for all the sort of scare stories about QE and the things which were misplaced. The UK has actually done done really very decently and it, it's punched its weight. And I, I think we will, uh, we're likely now to see a period when the UK actually doesn't do that. It goes through a you know, hopefully this won't be a very prolonged period, but it, there will be a period of time when actually the growth rate in the UK is suboptimal. And it's going to be because of some of these dislocations that are unavoidable. Actually, just, uh, ironically, that's coinciding with a period of pretty optimal growth rate in Europe. And, you know, many of the countries that we were talking about a few years ago as really being suboptimal growth rates in Europe, partly because they were very late into, into implementing QE. And that's now feeding through and the economies are really picking up a pace. And so, yes, that does have an impact on how, where, we, where we think it's the best place to invest and how, how we see the opportunities. And there are, you know, there are very clear risks to companies that may be um, assumptions have to change somewhat because of this suboptimal rate. You know, I'm not talking about dramatic wholesale shifts, but, you know, this is a slight shift of thinking. Well, on that note, we're going to have to bring it to an end. I'm afraid we've run out of time. There's plenty more we could have talked about, Paul, but thank you very much for joining us and sharing your insights. You have been listening to a Moneymakers podcast in association with Share Radio. You can find us on leading channels such as SoundCloud and YouTube and on the Share Radio website. To find out more, visit www.money-makers.co.